Why don't you find a copy of God's Word, find the book of Philippians chapter 3 is where we're going to be at tonight as we are continuing this series that we've just very um, geniusly called Philippians. And so we're just stealing things from the Bible. And we've been asking you this question, well, how are you uh, filling in this blank to live is what for you? Like, what are you about? And we're continuing in this series, and we're so glad you made the decision to get here tonight. And I want to start off just by telling you guys, a couple of years ago, I had the privilege to travel uh, to Alaska in, in January. So it sounds really cool, but then when I throw that out there in January, it was really cool. You know what I'm saying? Really cold. Anyway, I have a friend up there, and he's on staff at a church and he invited me to come up and do some ministry with them. And so I set out on my journey, and I'm getting ready to hit the final leg of my travel. I've landed in Anchorage, Alaska, and I'm trying to get to Soldotna, Alaska. And so I start looking around because I have to switch airlines, and I quickly realize that I'm missing a very important documentation that will allow me to travel to my next destination. And so I've made it this far. I used my driver's license to board an airplane in Kansas City that took me to Seattle, that took me to Anchorage. And when I shifted airlines, I realized that I've lost my driver's license somewhere. So I start doing what you would probably do. You know, you start checking every pocket, every space, everywhere. Everywhere you could think it might have been. I start looking forward, and then I just come to the conclusion, I've lost my driver's license. And so I low-key kind of start panicking on the inside, but on the outside, I got it together. You know what I'm talking about? I'm like, yeah, it's cool. You know, I don't know how I'm going to get there. You know what I'm saying? And so I start calling like security in Kansas City. Of course, no one answers the phone at the airport. I don't know what they're doing. Anyway, and I leave a message and then they finally call me back and they're like, no, we, we haven't seen your driver's license. So I'm like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. And I call my wife and I'm like, babe, I, I cannot find my driver's license. And so I start um, the process for her to expedite my passport, which, you know, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but we had a newborn baby and two little ones at the time. And if you've, if you've never been around that craziness, everything's a big deal, all right? And so she's losing her mind. You did what? She's very disappointed in me. Anyway, and so then I go to this airline, and if you've ever been to Alaska, you've maybe flown on this airline, which has got to be the the biggest low-key airline I've ever been a part of. It's called Raven. Now, when you go to Raven Airline in Alaska, it's called, Alaska's called America's Last Frontier, I guess for a reason, because there's like no, there's no TSA working at Raven, all right? You roll up there and you're like, hey, do I need to go through some sort of security? They're like, nah, you look all right, come on. There's no security. I go up to them, I'm like, hey, um, here's the deal. I don't have a driver's license, and so I can't really prove that I am who I say I am. And they're like, uh, you'll be all right. We'll get you to your destination. They're not tripping at all, right? But they said this. Here's the catch, though. We can't ensure that you're going to be able to get home without the proper identification. And so here's what I did. I just took it. And so I, I made it to my destination, and I began to do the mission in which I was called to do there. And I start there tonight because I was low-key stressing, but really I was stressing in a big way. And I was frustrated because I had lost my ID. And I knew that I could accomplish some things, but I would not be able to get home if I didn't have my proper ID. And I think that that's a great picture of a lot of us here tonight. Like some of you, you come in here tonight, and you are in, in this journey called life. And you're catching one leg to the next, and you're trying to navigate young adult years. But some of you, maybe you've come in here tonight and, and you're experiencing a little bit of an identity crisis. Like somewhere along the way, you, you forgot who you were or you lost who you were because you didn't mean to, but somewhere along the way, you just lost it somewhere. 
And maybe the reason why you're carrying so much anxiety and why you're stressing so much is because deep down inside, you don't know who you are. And then when we start thinking like eternity and making it to your eternal home and we start talking about heaven, like there's even more anxiety that comes in because you don't know how you're even going to get there. And maybe, just maybe the reason why you're having this little bit of an identity crisis or maybe the reason why you lost your ID, so to speak, is because you've been following the wrong people or filling your heart with the wrong things. And again, deep down inside, you, you don't know how you're going to get to heaven. If you're taking notes, I've titled this message, Prove It. Prove It. Because in order for me to get home, again, I could accomplish some things, but in order for me to get home on that trip to Alaska, I was going to have to prove who I claimed to be. And here's what I want you to see tonight. I want, to, I want to, to point to God's word so that you have an example to follow. Talk about an emptiness to fill. And before we leave tonight, I want to point you to an eternity to anticipate And so Paul, he's the guy that wrote this letter to this church at Philippi, and Paul's like this stalwart Christian, man. I mean, he's like the guy that, when it comes to following Jesus, man, he's one of the best examples. He's like the greatest theologian in the New Testament. He's got such an incredible spiritual resume, and he's a guy that is just all in for Christ. And he started this little church in Philippi, which is in like modern-day Turkey. Anyway, he started this church, and this church was like one of his most beloved churches, and he He finds himself in this prison in Rome. He's actually on house arrest, and he's writing this letter to this church at Philippi because there are some threats in the town that are similar threats that we face in Kansas City today. And the threat is is there, there are distractions that may cause us to drop our ID somewhere along the way. And Paul is writing to this church so that they will keep their identity rooted in Christ and who he's called them to be. And so he picks up in Philippians chapter 3, starting... In verse 17, he says, brethren. Now, let's just stop right there. He, he's calling them brethren. That's like, that's like he said, hey, my people. Like, Paul, he loves this church at Philippi. Like, he's friends with the Philippians. And he, it takes him back to the, how the church got started. It, the church got started with Paul meeting this girl named Lydia. And think like fashionista, like big Instagram following, kind of hipster, all the cool spots. And Paul has got this woman in mind because he saw her come to Christ. And then he remembers the slave girl who was kind of an outcast. And she was this like demon-possessed and crazy. And she was being exploited by people. And he remembers the day when he, when he said, hey, knock it off. And, and And she surrendered her life over to Jesus and joined this Philippian church. And then he remembers that crazy story in his life when he was in jail and he was singing songs and like this earthquake happened. And then this jailer that was working there, probably ex-military, blue collar, rough guy, he was about to take his own life, about to kill himself. And then Paul was like, hey, stop, stop. We we haven't left. And so the guy was going to kill himself because he thought that everybody had left and the Romans were just going to kill him anyway for failing in his job. And so he thought, why not? I'll do it myself and keep my honor. But Paul said, no, no, stop, stop. We didn't leave. And then he led this guy to Christ and his whole family. And so this is the family that started. These people are the people that started. This is the launch team of the church at Philippi. This fashionista, this demon-possessed girl, and this ex-military roughneck jailer. Paul writes to them, he says, brethren. And he speaks to them like, like people that he'd done life with, that he loved deeply. He's like, don't lose your way. Don't, don't forget who you are. You've got a mission to accomplish. 
And don't lose your ID. And so he's writing to them. He says, brethren. He goes on. He says, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Point number one, if you're taking notes tonight, write this down. An example to follow. An example to follow. See, we all have come in here tonight, and deep down inside, here's something that we all know, and we've had this in our life, that we need an example to follow, but also we need to be an example for someone else to follow. And Paul's looking at this church, and he's like, hey, hey, unapologetically, he is inviting them to follow him as he follows Jesus. That Paul says, hey, you, you look at me, look, pattern your life around my life. And Paul sets this pattern for us to follow him. And there were two things at least that Paul was fired up about. And so if you're looking for a biblical character to pattern your life after, Paul is your man tonight. And Paul was fired up about at least these two things. The first thing Paul was fired up about that he was saying, hey, pattern your life after me is that you've got to know God. Like knowing Jesus for Paul wasn't just like something that he just did time um, and, and, you know, time and time again, just on the weekends or on a Tuesday night. Like Paul, he wanted to know Jesus. Like he wanted to live out Psalm 34, 8 that says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you want to pattern your life after Paul, man, you got to know God. You got to get in the word and you got to follow him as he follows Jesus. Paul, he also, he didn't just want to know God. He wanted to make Jesus known. Like Paul was all about getting the word out. We find in this book uh, that we can parallel with Philippians, it's called Acts, and it talks about the journey of Paul and how he did different things. And three times we have Paul in three different scenarios letting people know how he came to Christ. I wonder, do you know how to share your testimony if you came to Christ? Like if you know Christ, do you know how to share your story in a compelling way where you could share it with somebody that's, that's high class, somebody that's low class, and somebody that's in the middle? And if you are a Christian, you claim to follow Jesus, and you know how to share your story, when was the last time you shared it? And Paul, man, he says, hey, follow my example, and you've got to let people know that I'm trying to know God, and I'm trying to make him known. And he says, follow this example, See, here's a truth that I know that we all have come to experience in our life at some point, and it's if you follow someone, you'll end up where they're going. You get that? If you follow someone, you're going to end up where they're going, and you need an example to follow paradigm. We, we, we have a culture of following, right? Like a lot of y'all, y'all on Instagram, y'all on Snapchat, some of y'all on Facebook, you know, you and your mama, and so y'all y'all got all that, right? And, and you're following people, right? LinkedIn, you're following people, and, and we have this culture of following. We like to follow celebrities. We, you know, we like to keep up with, with Kanye's conversion and see how that's going, right? And we like to follow all of these things, but you need to ask yourself, who are you following? Because listen, this is a truth, that if you follow someone, you'll end up where they are going, now, the problem that exists here tonight is that we're following people and we're patterning, patterning our life after people that are not following Jesus. Like some of us, we've come in here tonight and, and we, can, we can quote Zach Galanafa, however you say his name, right? And we can quote Michael Scott more than we can quote the scriptures. Like some of us here tonight, we are more fired up about binge watching friends because you missed the 90s than you are about getting into God's word or binging the Bible. 
Like some of you, you you've come in here tonight and, and you're following people or you're more excited about things and you're patterning your life after examples that are not leading you to Christ. And this happens in, in those secular things, if you will, but also spirit, spiritual world as well. Like I'll talk with people and they'll quote Calvin, John Calvin, more than Jesus Christ. And they're following the example of a theologian rather than the scriptures. And Paul is saying, hey, follow me as I follow Jesus. Who are you following? Who who is your example in life? Listen, if you want to become the man that God has created you to become, then find a godly man and pattern your life after him. If you want to become the woman that God has created you to become, find the godliest woman you know and pattern your life after him. Some of, the, some of the best advice I could give you tonight is for you to come to the conclusion that you are not a great leader. Because if you'll come to that conclusion, you will admit that you need advice so that you can become the leader that you hoped you could become someday. And you'll seek help from people and, you're, and you'll pattern your life after somebody. Who, who, who's the example that you have in your life? God doesn't only want us to find an example. He wants us to be an example. I mean, I see so much potential here tonight. And so many of you guys, you are with confidence saying, hey, follow me as I follow Jesus. And man, that just, that just, that just salts my watermelon, man. It fires me up, right? And, and then there's others of you, when I hear your story and I hear about how much has been invested in you, like some of you know the Bible better than I do. I preach week in and week out. You're like, eh, I, don't, I don't think that's what that means, right? But what are you doing with all of that knowledge? And you need to be an example for somebody. Give your life away, Paradigm. And confidently get right with Christ and then eagerly invite people to follow you. Listen, your faith is private. It is your faith. But it was never meant to stay private. That your faith is private. And it's personal, but it wasn't meant to stay that way. And so invite people to follow you. Listen, God has given every one of you a platform. That may be a social media platform. That may be a cubicle in an office platform. That may be a classroom. That may be some roommates. That may be some friends. He's giving you a platform, and he's saying, hey, how are you leveraging your platform? How are you being a witness is what the Scripture says. And so we need an example to follow. And listen, we need to be an example. So Paul, he's saying, hey, brethren, you may have lost your ID. You may have forgotten who you are, but but follow me as I follow Jesus and I'll help you find it and recover it. And he goes on in verse 18, he says this. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. You could circle that and whose glory is their shame. Ultimately, he said, who set their mind on earthly things. Point number two, if you're taking notes, write this down. An emptiness to fill. An emptiness to fill. See, Paul, like like he's, he's weeping over the thought of this. Like when he thinks about people who are not following Jesus, those who, who he calls are enemies of the cross, like he's weeping over their lostness. I wonder if you know Christ, when was the last time that you wept over the lost? When was the last time you felt a burden for the things that Paul is burdened for, but ultimately that God is burdened for? 
And it's crazy because Paul's saying, I'm weeping over these people, but then he says it like it is. He says, man, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Because Paul knows what we need to know tonight, that the greatest enemy of the cross of Christ is not Satan, it's self. That the greatest enemy of the cross of Christ is not Satan, it is self. And one of the ways that this plays out that Paul mentions is that we have made our God, excuse me, we have made our belly our God. And what he's saying is that, that not literally like we're worshiping our belly, like, ooh, he's got a sexy belly, like, man, you know what I'm saying? Like pictures of eight packs and stuff. Some of y'all, yes, okay? But he's not saying like you, we've literally like worship like photos of bellies and stuff like that. Belly dance, you know, none of that, all right? Like in this culture, what he's talking about is, it's like a figure of speech. Like in the ancient world, the, the belly was like the seat of passions or emotions. Like if you were trying to tell somebody in this day like, like how much you love them, you would say, man, you wouldn't say, I love you with all my heart. You would say, I love you with all my belly. And that's weird in our culture, but in this culture, they believe that that's where that, that, that was like the English translation of heart. And Paul's saying that, that the people that are enemies of the cross of Christ are those who have made their passions, their emotions, their desires, or their cravings their God. Think about how God made us, right? It's very interesting how we're all put together and the why behind certain things anatomically. And, and he says this, that we have this tendency to, to make our stomach our God. Now, what is a stomach? It's just this empty void inside of our, the cavity of our body. Like we're all born with the stomach. And, and some of y'all, even now, as I'm talking about that, there's not much in your stomach. And so you're feeling hunger pangs right now. You're like, let this man get done preaching so I can get a hot dog, all right? For the love of God, right? Please, I need a dog. I need a hot dog, right? But think about this. Inside of the body of every human being is this hole that if it's not filled properly, it will crave something to satisfy it. And I think that God is using this as a metaphor to teach us something very profound about us spiritually tonight. That there is a, a, a hole inside of every soul that's here tonight. And it longs to be filled with something. And some of you have come in here tonight and you have craved this thing or that thing. And you have feasted upon this thing or that thing. And it has left you dry and empty. That there's this small thing that everyone has here tonight. And this small thing, if we, don't, if we don't get this small thing in check, it has the potential to ruin everything in our life. And the small thing I'm talking about is a craving. That every one of you, you've come in here tonight and, and you have a craving. And this is, this is what I know about cravings. Cravings are God-given desires that have been perverted and hijacked by the world and by sin. And so some of you, you crave to be accepted and so the way that you go after that craving is in a simple way. You sleep with whatever is breathing. Some of you, you, you crave to find significance, and so you put yourself out there on social media wearing God knows what so that you can just get somebody to double tap your image and so you can make it above 10 likes, right? And we have these God-given desires, but sin perverted them. What else I know about cravings is that they always say, now, they never say later. They always say more 
like, I don't know about you, but my cravings, they're never like, nah, I'm good, right? Like you could go to B-dubs tonight and crush the BOGO wings, right? And then completely regret that in the morning and be like, oh, I can't eat again. But in the morning you're like, okay, once I regretted that, you know, uh, I'm gonna eat again, right? And here's what else I know about cravings is, again, they're never finally satisfied. Cravings will cost us more than we wanna pay. And let me just give you an example. In the Old Testament, there's this story between two brothers named Jacob and Esau. They were twins, and there was a rivalry between these guys, even from the womb. Like, they used to wrestle inside of the womb. And so Jacob, he's the second born, and he comes out grabbing the heel of Esau, and these guys couldn't be more different. Esau, he's a daddy's guy. He's a man's man. He's got red hair, and he's hairy and rugged, likes to hunt, you know, out in the woods and just smells funny and probably got a big beard you know, and just all that stuff, drinks his coffee black, you know, eats red meat, that sort of thing. And then you got Jacob. Jacob's got smooth skin. He's probably dainty. He's in the kitchen and he's a mama's boy and he doesn't like to go outside. He puts creamer in his coffee. You know, he's just kind of a, he's just a different fella compared to Esau. And these guys, they are in a rivalry their entire life. And so one day Esau's been out hunting. We find this in Genesis and he comes back in and he is starving. He says, I'm starving to death. I don't know if you've ever been there. You're not starving to death, okay? Esau could probably make it about five days just on his body, right? He's a little heavy. Anyway, and so he's not starving to death, but Jacob's in there cooking up some stew. It must have been good stew. I don't know. Anyway, it smelled good, and he comes in. And he's like, Jacob, give me a bowl of stew. He's like demanding, and Jacob says, sell me your birthright. Now, in our culture, that don't mean a whole lot, but the birthright back in the day, that was a big deal. Like, like the birthright, that meant that you were blessed and highly favored, like for real, not just a saying, all right? That you were blessed and highly favored by God. It meant that you, you had more authority than any other sibling. And so when your parents die and there's like some sort of family decision, we ain't calling in lawyers, the oldest gets the say. And it also meant that you're gonna get more money than any other sibling as well. That you would get two-thirds of the inheritance just because you were born first. And so this is what the birthright meant. And so Jacob's like, sell me your birthright. And Esau's response, he is so hungry that he says, what good is my birthright if I'm dead? Give me a bowl of stew. Sells Jacob his birthright. And in a moment, his craving causes him to give in for a bowl of stew, and it costs him his birthright. So as the bowl is sitting there spinning empty, and he's got his belly full of stew. He begins to realize what he just did. And for the rest of his life, he regrets selling the thing that is most precious to him because he wanted to satisfy craving. Now what's crazy is that this one decision, it impacts his legacy, y'all. And so we flip over from Genesis, the book of beginnings, the first book in the Bible, to Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, and we begin to read how Jesus got here. Jesus is like the most amazing human being ever to walk the planet Earth, right? He's like the MVP of Christianity in life, right? And it begins to lay out like where he came from. And it says that this is the story of how Abraham, who's like the OG Christian, he's the father of our faith, Abraham beget Isaac, that was his son, and then Isaac. Isaac, his son, was Jacob. Because Esau sold his birthright, 
He forfeited being in the legacy of Jesus Christ. It's a craving, a small thing, that if we give into it and we don't check it, it could cause us generations, y'all. Some of y'all, y'all hear this story like, man, who would ever do that, right? Like, who would ever forfeit being in the Bible, right? Being a part of Jesus' family tree for a bowl of stew. That's ridiculous. You, you would. And you maybe have. And I would. That cravings, they're, they're powerful things. If we leave them unchecked, will give in. Listen, you have no idea what Jesus wants to do with you in your life. And you may forfeit it all because you can't say no. And maybe the reason why you come in here and you feel like you've lost your way and you don't know who you are and, you, and you're struggling with your identification in Christ is because you've filled an emptiness with the wrong thing the one night stand, you thought buying that car just kind of on a whim and taking out that loan so that you could get it would bring you some attention and you would be envied by other people. You just wanted to get high one more time, go out with them one more time. And you giving in to a craving could be costing you more than you could imagine. Psychologists, they call it uh, an impact bias. And so when we, we get something on our mind that we really, really want and, and, and we begin to rationalize why this is a good decision, right? I know, I know everyone's been there because I know I've been there, right? We're all made of the same stuff and we all do the same stupid things, me included. And so there have been times where I'm like, this is a good idea. And I'm like, no, it's a terrible idea. But I'm like, no, it's going to work out just fine. I'm like, no, it's a terrible idea. You know what I'm talking about? Y'all talk to yourself like this? I know I do. Anyway, it's impact bias, and what, what that means is that, is that you don't care about the consequences eventually. It's worth it. And, then, and then, then it blends with this other thing that psychologists call focalism. And focalism is where you get so focused on something where you're like, I gotta have this, right? And so some of you, you'll go home tonight and there is something in your proximity that is causing you a lot of pain. And you won't be done with it. And you think that you can just kind of walk past it and look at it. Or you think you can just keep checking your phone and you're getting texts from him. And you think that you're just going to be able to get over it. But listen, it doesn't work that way because you're going to struggle with what I struggle with, an impact bias and focalism. Like, I wonder, have you ever wanted something so bad, you know, and, and then, like, you got it, and then, like, 30 minutes later, you're like, what was I thinking? That you gave into that craving? Some of y'all sitting there chatting, I really don't, I don't, I mean, I know some of my cravings, but I don't know, I don't know what my cravings are. Well, just look at your YouTube page. Just, just like, if we were to sit down, say, like, hey, pull up your YouTube page, you and I together, we'll type in your account. And, and, you know, it's going to throw, like, some recommended things. Like, what, what you know, some of y'all be like, DIY. You know, you can spend 10 hours just learning how to do stuff, but you ain't never done anything. Right? Uh, others of you, it's just people that rant on YouTube. You're like, oh, this one's really good. You know, and they just argue for, like, 10 minutes about politics or whatever it is, right? Uh, others of you, it, it's, you know, it's weird information about people you'll never meet, but you, you care to know that. 
And then you got the cat video, people that are just watching cats all day, right? And, and listen, you are what you YouTube. For, for a good exercise, look at your YouTube page and see what media it is suggesting. Because here's what I know to be true. We will eventually reflect what we watch. And you may be thinking it's no big deal, it's fun to watch these things, but eventually you'll want to act out those things. And like technology is such a great indicator. Like some of y'all, you, you need to look at what your phone tells you. Like Apple Maps, you know, you wake up in the morning and the, and the text message that Siri sends you, eight minutes to Chick-fil-A, right? Uh, others of you, 15 minutes to the gym. Some of you get a notification at 11.30 at night. 30 minutes to his house. Because technology's tracking us, but it's revealing us. And if you don't know what your cravings are, just look at those things. See, some of you are undermining your future like Esau was undermining his, giving into this craving because his belly was his God. He was gonna be in the lineage of Jesus, but he forsook it all. Some of you come in here and you are forsaking the, the well-being of your marriage. Some of you are like, I ain't even married. I know. Because you're giving into a craving time and time again that is not going to yield marital intimacy in your future. Others of you come in here and, and you want to be places financially. You want to do things financially, but you have terrible spending habits. You're like, I got to have this, right? And so you go down to the plaza with $30 to your name, but a line of credit. And you just swipe until your heart's content on Friday. And then it gets old, and you go back the next week. Others of you, like you, you look at yourself, your body, how you're caring for yourself, and, and you, you want to have a long, uh, lustrous life, but you're so lazy, you don't eat right, you don't work out, and it just doesn't work that way. And you're giving in to craving after craving, yet others of you have come in here tonight, or you may be listening to this message, and you are undermining your eternity to give in to a craving. Because your God is your belly. And you've got to have it now. Paul says, ultimately, you have set your mind on earthly things, like you're living for this world. And what, what uh, John, one of Jesus' best friends, says about the world, he says in John, 1 John 2, 17, that the world, and it's, the world is passing away, is what he says, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God, he abides forever. Like, listen, it's, it's not going anywhere that's going to end well if you're pursuing this world for satisfaction. But you need to know this, that Jesus wants to satisfy you. Like, he has not come to rob things from you. He, he, is, he, is the one, he is the genius behind every pleasure that you chase after. He's come to give you life and life more abundantly. He has not come to steal joy from you, but he's come to give it to you abundantly. And we have a hard time believing this. Let me explain it this way. There was a scientist, uh, a psychologist in the 1970s named Bruce Alexander, and um, he, he was aware of this real popular research where they'll take rats 
and uh, they'll put them in this cage by themselves, and then they'll give them a bottle of fresh water and then a bottle of water that's laced with cocaine. And the rat, they'll, they've observed that the rat will go for the cocaine water, and it'll just drink the cocaine water till it's overdosed and died. Well, this guy, Bruce Alexander, he's like, you know what, I wonder if we created like a rat paradise. Uh, he called it the rat park. In the rat park, there was a, a lot of rats in this cage, and they had like colorful balls that they could play with. Um, they had opportunity to go to like, you know, like rat socials. They could like Netflix and chill with other rats, you know what I'm saying? And, and so like they had some community and this was a rat park and they put the same two bottles of water, the one with cocaine in it and the one with fresh water in it. And here's what they found out. That the rats in the rat park, they went for the fresh water and they never got addicted to the cocaine water. And so Bruce Alexander, he concluded that it's not your chemical that's a problem, it's your cage of isolation that's a problem. And what he concluded is that addiction is a symptom of the crisis of disconnection. That the opposite of addiction, and that can be whatever addiction, that can be to cocaine, that can be to pornography, that can be to social media, that can be to work, Whatever your addiction is, you fill in the blank. That the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, but connection. This is why some of y'all know like a, somebody that's been through AA, you know, like they're a recovering alcoholic, and you liked them more when they were drinking, you know, like they're just bitter now, right? Like, hey man, I know that this was a problem, but I think you need your problem. You were a lot better person then, right? Because what they've done is that they've gotten sober from this, but they haven't connected to anyone. And so they're bitter and mean and brutal. That the opposite of addiction is not just sobriety, it's connection. And listen, Jesus is the one that is going to satisfy that ultimate longing for connection. He came so that you could be connected to your creator, so that you could know him, so that you would know the love that is infinite, the grace that is abundant, the mercy that is rich. That Jesus, he says it like this in John 7, 38, he says, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, which is the same word for belly that Paul uses in Philippians 3, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That Jesus has a, has a supply that doesn't run dry. Like he wants to give every heart here tonight that is longing for satisfaction, that is longing for purpose, he wants to give that to you. And he is the well, the source of living water. So. What Jesus is saying is that the craving that you long for will be satisfied perfectly by me. Blaise Pascal, a theologian in days past, he said this, that there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. Maybe the reason why you've lost your ID Maybe the reason why you're confused in life and you're stressing, not sure how you're gonna make it to heaven is because you filled an emptiness with the wrong thing. And so Paul, as he's talking about this, he's, he's literally weeping as he says, man, their end is destruction. And he's thinking about people maybe that he'd known that have chased things that weren't gonna bring them life and and, and here's what Paul knows, and here's what you need to know. What you chase today, it will capture you later. And a lot of you think that you're in control of that craving, but are you? Like I literally watched my dad drink himself to death 
He died in a borrowed trailer on borrowed land outside of a junkyard because he couldn't put the bottle down and he was successful in life. He traveled the world for his work. He's been to every continent outside of Antarctica. He was a brilliant man, but his end was destruction. And Paul's weeping over people that he knew with similar stories, but even more so the destruction that Paul's talking about is a destruction for those who don't know Christ and it's a place called hell. We don't talk about hell a whole lot in the church today, do we? Like it's just this really uncomfortable subject matter. And Paul, he's talking about the destruction in a place called hell. And when we don't talk about hell in the church, here's what we're saying to Jesus. Jesus, you're way more barbaric than we are. And we are far more compassionate and wise than you. Because Jesus talked about hell more than all the other biblical authors combined that hell is a real place and we need to talk about it. That some of you are headed for destruction for eternity if you don't turn. And I think for most of us, like we've come in here and when it comes to hell, like we, we, it's a tough pill to swallow, right? Like it's hard for us to imagine like God, you know, we say he's a good God. Like it's hard for us to imagine like infinite punishment. Like it just seems too harsh, right? And infinite punishment for things that like, you know, you know, what, like, What if I wasn't a Christian? That seems like an infinite punishment. Come on, God, that seems a a little bit too harsh. And then we're starting to think like, you know, only bad people go to hell and I'm not that bad. You know, like hell should be a place for like really bad people like Stalin and uh, and Hitler, you know, and and we start thinking, you know, I'm not that bad. And so that's, you know, that's really for that. But listen, the biblical teaching on hell answers both of these reservations. That the Bible tells us that God is a just judge. And so he simply gives people for eternity that which they wanted most on the earth. Think of it this way. That hell is God's removal of himself from the equation, which is what a lot of people long to have for eternity. See, either God is your master, that's weird, Am I getting, am I sounding normal out there? See, God is either your master and your savior or yourself is your master and your savior. And that the objection that hell is a place of a forever punishment, listen, God is just simply giving people what they wanted for here. And then hell's like a natural consequence. Like think of it this way, that that even in this world, it's clear that if self-centeredness rather than God-centeredness makes you miserable and blind, then then why wouldn't that be the case for eternity? Like like, have you ever hung out with an addict? You know, not in an addict, but with an addict, like somebody's addicted to something, all right? Like you ever hung out with somebody like that? Like there's no reasoning with that guy or that lady, you know? And I told you earlier, my dad was an alcoholic and it it just didn't seem to, there there wasn't anything we could motivate him with. There wasn't any, like he had to have alcohol. And think about this, for forever. My dad died in a, alone in a borrowed trailer on borrowed land. This is a picture of what hell will be like. Like you think about forever being self-centered. You think about forever being self-absorbed. You think about forever being self-pitied and self-justifying. Think about the breakdowns of that type of person in this life. 
the breakdowns relationally, psychologically, and even physically. You think about knowing someone like this, or maybe you've been there, and it just seems like you go into deeper and deeper denial of the source of your problem. C.S. Lewis, he says this, that hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it now. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. See, in each of us, there's something growing, which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. And I would say nailed to the cross. Paul, he's weeping. Because some people are headed for destruction. But may that not be said of of us tonight here, Paradigm. Like, don't be an enemy of the cross by craving something other than Christ. Your end will be destruction. And Jesus has come to destroy all of this by being destroyed on the cross so that we can know life and life abundantly. Paul, he goes on in verse 20, and he reminds this church at Philippi, and he reminds us here tonight, for our citizenship is in heaven. You could circle that phrase. Only used in the New Testament is that word citizenship right here. He goes on to describe, he says, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And so in light of that, he goes on into chapter four and says, therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, notice the terms of endearment there. He says, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Point number three, if you're taking notes, write this down. An eternity to anticipate. An eternity to anticipate. So this citizenship that Paul's talking about, this was a big deal to the people at Philippi. Like just a few decades before, they have been declared citizens of the Roman Empire. Now the people in Philippi, that's kind of like the outskirts, so that's kind of the ghetto of the, of the empire at this time. And so they didn't have a lot of money. They were, they were the offspring of ex-military people. And, and, and so like for them to have all of these privileges and all of this imposed power of the Roman Empire at their fingertips was a really big deal. And Paul is leveraging, he's like, man, that's a huge deal, but I need you to get more fired up about the eternal power that you have in an eternal God and the eternal privileges that you have in Christ because you're you're not just a citizen of Rome, but you are a citizen of heaven. And he goes on to say that you've got to have this eager expectation for eternity. Like, I wonder if you know Christ, man, are you fired up about heaven? Like, I think one of the greatest motivations is anticipation. You know that? Like, I know my family and I were going on vacation next week, and, and part of the joy of vacation is just looking forward to the vacation. Like once you get there, you're like, oh, it's almost over, right? And we start shopping, planning, and we start getting motivated to do all these things because one of the greatest motivations in life is an anticipation. That's why Paul looks at them in verse one of chapter four, and he says, he says, therefore you stand fast. You stand firm, you don't quit, you don't give up. And he's telling them that you've gotta be eagerly anticipating eternity. I wonder, are you? Like low-key, I think some of us are more fired up about Chief's kingdom than we are God's kingdom. 
People getting more turned last Thursday or, or whatever the next home game is, they're getting more turned about that than we are about heaven. And Paul, he's this guy that just seems to have this heavenly focus. He said earlier in chapter 1 that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Who says that? Somebody that understands that every glory, every goodness, everything, every craving that has been satisfied here is but a glimpse compared to the surpassing pleasure that will come in heaven. That in heaven there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more heartbreaks, no more hungry children, no more sex slaves, no more abortions, that the just judge will come and he will establish his kingdom. So Paul, he says, I eagerly anticipate my eternity because that's where my Savior is. And maybe some of you, you've come in here tonight and, and you can't have that eager anticipation because you don't know who you are. And so that day that I told you I lost my ID, man, I was so frustrated, man. Like, I'm not telling you what I, the conversation I was having in my mind. I've been traveling all day. I finally got there. I get up to my room, and I throw my stuff down, and I'm so frustrated, and I'm going through it. And I, and I pull out my Bible, and I throw it down on the bed, and I'm looking at some things, and then I look over, and my Bible's laying open. And there was my driver's license. You would have thought I would have read my Bible while I was traveling all day. And it was like in that moment, first of all, I called my wife and said, hey, baby, abort the mission, all right? Abort the mission. <laughs> Stay at home. And she's like, I'm going to do. Okay, but I love you. Praying for you. It was like in that moment, I was like, of course. <laughs> the thing I needed to prove that I was who I said I was so that I could eventually get home to the people I love. It was in God's word all along. And I share that with you because that's where you find your identity paradigm. That's where we go to to find our identity. Like, like I wonder, why do you think you're going to go to heaven? Like, like what's the proof? What's the papers that you got that you think is going to get you into heaven? Your good works? Um, um, some of the money that you gave, some of the things that you've done? What gives you the confidence that you're going to have the proof to get into heaven that you need? It comes from the Word of God. That it's in the Word of God that we uncover some of the, the most amazing promises of Jesus, like in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where he says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. you believe that? That's your identity if you're in Christ from the word of God. And some of you are like, Chad, you don't know what I've done. Like if somebody treated me the way I treated God, I would have nothing to do with them. But that's not the God I serve. you come to him and you read his word and you see the unblemishing promises of God that declare your newness in him you believe that by faith you'll have the ID that you need to get to heaven
Because in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it shares the gospel real simply. It says, he who knew no sin, talking about Jesus, he became sin on our behalf so that we who are full of sin might become the righteousness of Christ in Jesus. I wonder, do you know that? If you're planning on getting to heaven any other way, then you're grossly mistaken, my friend. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for tonight. God, I thank you for my friends, and I pray that you would give them courage to respond to your word. God, that they would find someone that they can pattern their life after that would lead them to become the man or the woman that you've created them to become, that they would then go forth and they would be an example to somebody. They would be an inspiration to somebody. They would be a Paul to somebody. God, I pray that we would take a hard look at the things that we're trying to fill our heart with. God, that if we feel empty tonight, we would come to you and we would cry out and say, God, would you fill us with that, that river of living water that you claim to bring? God, you would help us to quench some cravings and you would give us some new cravings for you, Jesus. That you would put deep inside of our hearts this longing, this eager anticipation for eternity with you. That would be rooted in the proof that you bled on a cross, rose from the grave, so that we could be new in Christ's name, I pray.